Now, it's my great pleasure to introduce Mr. Warren Olney. Warren Olney is the host and executive producer of the KCRW public radio program, To The Point. He's getting catcalled at the moment. He has also hosted Which Way LA, KCRW's signature daily local news program from 1992 to 2016. Olney and his programs have been honored with more than 40 national, regional, and local awards for broadcast excellence. He has received Emmy Awards for reporting and anchoring and Golden Mics for investigative reporting. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Warren Olney. Thank you. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Gregory. It is a real pleasure to be given away by Sokolo. I think we're all, be, all happy to be, uh, uh, to be on the block and to be distributed by this extraordinary organization. It's great to be here. Great to have you here. And this is a wonderful panel, I think, to talk about a very interesting subject. I think betrayal is probably as old as the tribe. But uh, treason is another matter. And there's both, we will find, uh, a simple answer to what is treason in the United States. And of course, there are many complicated answers as well. Uh, my uh, com compatriots here on the uh, platform, or I guess it's not really a platform, uh, uh, in the hole here where we are located, <laughs> are Eugene Volick at uh, my far right, who is a professor of constitutional law. He clerked for a Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. <laughs> Asha Rangappa is associate dean of the Yale Law School and a formal, former uh, FBI special agent in counterintelligence. And Carlton Larson is a professor of law at UC Davis, and he is writing a book on treason and the American Revolution. It all goes back a long way, you know. As I said, it seems that the betrayal is probably as old as the species, and, uh, and treason is certainly as old as the Constitution. Uh, a lot of the things we do have great histories. The Washington Post did a piece today on how the problem of high-ranking officials abusing their travel allowances was a big problem for ancient Rome. <laughs> so uh, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, let me put the first question to you, uh, Carlton, and that is, is this a good time to talk about treason? Well, as someone who's interested in this subject, it's always a good time uh, to talk about treason. <laughs> I've been <coughs> thinking about this subject for probably about 20 years now, uh, and usually it's me talking to myself uh, and people thinking I'm a little nutty for being interested in a subject like this, um, but miraculously about a year ago it suddenly became hot. Uh, <laughs> I, I still remember the day our, our media director at the law school told me that, um, that uh, Trump had encouraged the Russians to hack uh, some emails. Um, do you think you might get some calls on, on that issue? Uh, and sure enough, I did. And for the last uh, year and a half or so, treason has been a big part of our uh, national conversation. Now, that said, it's disappointing. Um, you don't want that to be the subject of national conversation. Um, if the issue is have you committed treason, and whether you have or haven't, the very fact that the question is being asked uh, suggests that something is quite seriously wrong. Um, but since there is so much discussion about it, uh, this is, I think, a subject worth talking about, particularly because there are so many misconceptions uh, about the crime and what it takes to be found guilty of it. Uh, we will come back to many of the issues that uh, you want to raise, but I want to introduce our other uh, panelists first and give them a time to uh, talk, particularly the idea of Trump uh, encouraging the Russians to hack. That's a very interesting uh, questions. Asha, you were a special agent of the FBI for counterintelligence, and it's my understanding that part of the job of such a person is to encourage people to commit treason. Is that right? Yes, that would be a part of, uh, of the job. So the counterintelligence division of the FBI, uh, which also, like treason, was probably not as much on everybody's radar um, until recently, um, but it the FBI does have the primary uh, mandate within the United States to monitor foreign intelligence activity. And so as a counterintelligence agent, what you do is you identify who's a spy, you figure out what they're doing, and you neutralize them, which means you basically make whatever operations they're doing ineffective. And this will typically not see the inside of a courtroom. 
Okay, you don't really prosecute spies. Most of them are here as diplomats. They have diplomatic cover, they have diplomatic immunity. And it's to your benefit, actually, to our benefit, to not let them know that we know what they're doing. Okay, so the leverage you have, this is spy versus spy, you just let them keep doing it, um, thinking that they're being effective and they're not. But the holy grail in counterintelligence is when you find a spy and you figure out what they're doing, is to potentially get them to flip and become a double agent. And if it is uh, a foreign intelligence officer who's here on behalf of his or her country, it's usually his, um, and you, you get them to then work for the United States, then they are, perhaps not legally, I don't know, depending on their country, but they are essentially betraying their country um, for the United States. So this is the spy game. Uh, we do it. Others do it, and you just always want to be the one that comes out on top. <laughs> I said that there was one question that is rather simply answered, and I'm going to put that to Eugene Navalik, uh, professor, of professor of constitutional law. What is treason legally in the United States? Well, I have all of human knowledge in my <laughs> pocket, and this, fortunately, is an unusually simple question. Treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. Requires a little bit more elaboration than the words, but not a lot. So first, adhering to their enemies means adhering to their enemies in time of war. Need not be a declared war. The Civil War, for example, was not understood as a declared war as such. Uh, uh, um, but it has to be war. And giving them aid and comfort is understood as giving them aid for the purpose, or excuse me, it's actually more, I think, in the adhering to their enemies, for the purpose of, of uh, uh, promoting their efforts. So there was actually a famous case from World War II where uh, a man um, sheltered his son who, was, who had come to America as a Nazi saboteur. Mm -hmm. And the question that the trial was, did he shelter his son because he was his son, Maybe he knew this would help the Nazis, but that wasn't his goal. Or did he shelter the son because he, the son, because he, the defendant, was himself, the father, a Nazi sympathizer, in which case he was actually trying to help the enemy. There's a vast range of bad behavior, including bad behavior having to do with foreign countries. A tiny fraction of that behavior is treason. Among other things, it requires a war. So, for example, it is not possible to be guilty of treason today by helping the Russians or the Chinese. Even, and I, I was born in what I guess was the Russian Empire, more or less. I have no affection for Russia. Uh, it's a, a country run by a pretty bad person, and it is our adversary in many ways. They're not our enemy in time of war, so therefore helping them can't be treason. Now, helping Al-Qaeda or helping ISIS or helping the Taliban, with all of which I think we're in sufficiently a state of war, with the purpose of helping them, is the crime of treason, although it turns out that most people who do help them are prosecuted under other crimes still, which are less demanding in their elements. So again, we see that only a small fraction of bad behavior, including criminally bad behavior, is actually treason. Asher, do you think you could flip this guy? <laughs> <laughs> From being a law professor to being what? A double law professor? Well, I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> Uh, when you're working with Asha, when you're working with um, uh, people and doing counter in, insurgency and, and getting them to flip, as you put it, do you sometimes work with American citizens and learn that they are in fact engaged in treasonous activity, and then encourage them to continue to do it so that you can get more evidence? Yes. <laughs> so um, the way that spies operate here. Uh, as I mentioned before, you have foreign intelligence officers, typically here under diplomatic cover. They are usually not the ones walking around trying to, you know, they don't have the access themselves. So what they do is they get agents. They get people who are going to work for them. They're looking for people with two things, access and vulnerability. So access is this person has the ability to get the information that I need and then the next step is, do they have vulnerability? Do they have something I can exploit that will get them to get that information and give it to me? Um, so yes, sometimes those agents, often those agents, are American citizens. Um, as Eugene said, that's 
um, not necessarily treason. Um, and it may not actually, depending what it is, on what it is, be another crime either. So actually, there are very few laws against spying. Um, even the Espionage Act, we often use the word espionage. The Espionage, espionage Act is also quite limited. It is limited to stealing defense secrets and, and passing classified information. So if it doesn't fall in that realm, so for example, providing information to Facebook on how to target certain demographic groups with political ads is not espionage. It's not treason. Um, it's not really clear if that is a crime. Um, you know, it depends on if it, you know, there could be an election, uh, you know, helping uh, a foreign entity uh, conspire to contribute to an election or something like that. So um, you can get them, you, the, the goal when you find someone doing that is to basically find something that you might be able to hold over their heads. Um, and sometimes you do and sometimes you can't. Um, but it, if you can, then you can sometimes get an incentive for them to keep doing it and then um, helping you out that way by giving, giving the information back to you. Carlton, what did Benedict Arnold do to get himself labeled the first and most notorious treasonous person in the United States? Yeah, so, so Benedict Arnold remains to this day really the, the, the worst traitor that America has ever had. Uh, and the curious thing is, if he had died in, in 1778, for example, he would have been viewed as one of the great heroes of the American Revolution. He was a very prominent general. He had served uh, admirably in campaigns in 1775, 76, 77. Um, but he grew disillusioned with the American cause. Uh, he uh, ultimately entered into a plot to betray West Point to the British, uh, and West Point is the, the key fort uh, on the Hudson River in New York, and so if that had fallen, it would have potentially given the British control of the entire Hudson River. Uh, and the plot was discovered almost serendipitously. It, it very, very came close to going through. Uh, and so when this was discovered, um, it would be sort of, I mean, an analogy today might be, you know, if we discovered that our Secretary of Defense uh, had gone over to um, the North Koreans. Uh, it would be that <coughs> shocking that somebody that high-ranking had done this. Uh, and there were high-ranking people in America who sided with the British, but they did so usually in 1775 or 76, when, once the conflict was, was starting up. Uh, nobody stuck with the American side as long as Benedict Arnold did and then uh, turned traitor to the other side. Um, so he was legitimately excoriated at the time as the very personification of evil. Uh, he was the only American defector to the British who was not allowed back uh, into the United States. Uh, and I think he quite rightly remains uh, a synonym for traitor. Uh, Eugene Volick, what's the uh, penalty for treason and how is it established? So it's a good question. I think it even today could be death. Historically, it has been death uh, in many situations, uh, although my sense is that, especially in America, that penalty has often been more named than actually executed. Uh, it's set forth by statute. I, I, you know, there are probably federal sentencing guidelines for that somewhere. <laughs> uh, the, the federal sentencing regime is notoriously algorithmic these days with kind of complicated schemes. I haven't looked them up, but it might be interesting to see. As a practical matter, I don't remember what the last serious batch of treason prosecution that would have tested well, Jonathan is. Jonathan Walker Lind, wasn't so, he? So Lind was, I, did he, I think he ultimately pled, is that right? Yeah, or? he pled not to a treason charge. Yeah. yeah. So, so just to remind charge. the audience, right. Jonathan Walker Lind was um, right at the beginning of... American Taliban. Uh, yes, he was American Taliban right after 9-11 when U.S. forces went into um, Afghanistan. He was caught on the battlefield. Right, like right. California, one of yours. Right. Um, <laughs> Uh, and today, my sense is there may be some others who might have fit the category, but they're generally prosecuted these days under uh, statutes like uh, uh, providing uh, material assistance to foreign terrorists. So it's like statutes. It's Congress that establishes the penalty. Yeah, the penalty is established by Congress. It is the only crime whose definition is set forth in the Constitution. It is also the one crime uh, which the Constitution okay. specifically provides a rule of evidence for that no person shall be convicted of treason unless on the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act or on confession in open court. No other crime has certainly as a constitutional matter those kinds of requirements. Uh, but the, uh, uh, but the um, uh, penalty for it, like the penalty for other things, is set forth by Congress. Asha, what about uh, Edward Snowden and uh, Chelsea Manning? Are these people uh, who do you think uh, 
have risen to treasonous behavior? Are they uh, appropriate subjects for counterintelligence? Or not, now they're not, obviously, because everybody knows who they are. But, but were they at one point? Well, they're definitely, they endangered national security. Um, so I think... How did, how did they do that? Well, they revealed a lot of secrets that then, I mean, as I mentioned before, part of our leverage in our ability to collect intelligence and, and have our leverage over our adversaries is not letting them know what we know or how we're collecting information. Once they know how we're getting our intelligence, they simply switch tactics. And then we start all over. We, it's a blank slate. Everything goes dry. We don't know what's happening. So even you know, if there might be a public interest reason for exposing something, um, there are some very significant uh, costs to that at a, at a national level in terms of our intelligence capabilities and what we're able to get. So I forget what the original question was. <laughs> um, well, do I consider was, them? Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning, are they in fact uh, traitors? Yeah, I consider them traitors, and I think it kind of goes to... not guilty to, of treason, necessarily. Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking about this question and, um, you know, why, why we use the word treason, and I think we're looking for words to express kind of the, the outrage or the shock and the disappointment we see when people betray their country. And so there are these other words, betrayal, disloyalty. But I came across one word, which was actually a great one, I think, and it's treachery. And I learned that actually Dante reserved the lowest, the ninth circle of hell for treachery. And he, he's, he made it the lowest, blackest, and farthest from heaven. And if you can just give me a moment, it's um, the punishment for treachery was uh, to, be, to be in a lake of ice. And Lucifer is in the middle of the lake. And the lake is made from his tears, and it's kept cold by his wings. And ice, because people who betray things that they love, people they love, their country, have no, um, they have no love, and so there's no warmth there. Um, so it's this amazing imagery if you read it, but I think that's what we're getting at when we talk about, um, well, when I talk about Snowden or <laughs> Chelsea Manning, or when we look at some of these things that are happening, um, it may not be the legal definition of treason, but we find it treacherous, and it's kind of this very emotional um, reaction that we're having, and we're trying to find the words to express that. Carlton Larson, how often do people say when they betray the country, that in fact they are patriots and they are doing it in the interests, not uh, to the disinterest or to the uh, destruction of the country. Um, well, I suspect you know many people who have been accused of treason would would argue that they are acting from from pure motives, but a lot of them aren't. Uh, I mean, if if they really were siding with the enemy in time of war, it's it's hard to make an argument that that really is in the interest of the United States. Um, it's hard to see how you know furthering Nazi Germany during World War II under any rational view had anything to do with uh, a patriotic vision of the United States. What about uh, James Comey? Um, people have accused him of being a traitor because he released information about his conversations with the president and and other made public other information as well. Is that traitorous behavior? No, that's not treason. Um, and I think one so of the... What is a traitorous <laughs> behavior? Well, it, is it, it, well, it might, might arguably you might say it's, it's, it's disloyalty to sort of an, an implicit uh, confidentiality um, uh, relationship that he would have had with the president. Uh, but the problem is when you start using words like treason to describe things like that, um, you know, political disagreements, um, political enemies, um, the idea that somebody is not really an American or somebody uh, is, you know, not a real, um, you know, red, red, white, and blue American because they don't believe exactly what you believe. Uh, well, it's precisely to stop those kind of arguments uh, that the treason clause is in the Constitution. Uh, during the Constitutional Convention, James Wilson, um, one of the primary people who drafted the clause, uh, said, uh, treason, crimes against the state, history shows us that more wrong can be done on this subject than on any other whatsoever. Uh, and what the framers did not want um, was to have, you know, uh, essentially a democracy in which the winning side prosecutes the losing side for treason. Uh, or in which uh, we are all convinced uh, that the other side, even if we fundamentally disagree with them, somehow is fundamentally uh, un-American. 
Uh, and so I, I get worried, um, uh, given how divided and poisonous much of our national rhetoric is, um, when we uh, sort of you know, dial it to 11, right, uh, to take it all the way into the language of trees. And what we're usually talking about is simply uh, political disagreements. Eugene, uh, if the standard is that we have to be at war mm -hmm. and that we have to give aid and company, country, uh, comfort to the enemy, is Robert E. Lee the quintessential traitor? Uh, well, he, he was only in the sense that pretty much all the Confederates were. Uh, they, because they were waging war on the U.S., uh, and they were, uh, um, uh, they were doing so precisely with the intention of, of, of that. To the extent they were giving aid and comfort, they were doing it to, to, uh, to uh, 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 further the war, but you don't even have to get them on aid and comfort. They were actually waging war. Why now, wasn't he then uh, tried and convicted of treason and executed? So, uh, I think uh, one reason why there's the pardon power, another subject that there's been much discussion about, is there are many reasons to have the pardon power. But, uh, as well, many reasons why you might want to reject it. But one reason was that this is an opportunity for national reconciliation. Uh, that there are certain things which are rightly considered crimes, but that, this, that the president ought to have the power to, in a statesman-like fashion, pardon in order to move on. And that's my understanding. I don't know all of the details, but my understanding is following the Civil War, there was essentially blanket pardons uh, for, uh, uh, for uh, um, uh, essentially everybody who waged war against the U.S. Uh, uh, for the crime of treason. I mean, you could still be punished, I think, for war crimes and other things. Interestingly, there were special disqualifications from holding office that were set forth by the 14th Amendment, parts of the 14th Amendment we don't pay attention to now. And those couldn't be waived by pardon, as I understand it. Those had to have, there was special congressional authorization for former traitors to come back and, let's say, be reelected to Congress. Uh, so the pardons weren't absolute. But yes, there was this blanket pardon, and the thought was the alternative would be to have kind of a long-running guerrilla warfare with the South, a failure to reintegrate uh, uh, the South into, uh, into the nation. How oh, shall we hear about uh, the CIA and uh, people uh, in the CIA uh, becoming a traitorous or engaging in treacherous uh, behavior. Um, what about Robert Hansen? He was in the FBI and uh, he apparently spied for the Soviet Union for how many years? 10 or 11 years? 18 years. 18 years? 18 years. He was, uh, I think, he's known as the worst intelligence disaster in American history. Um, Tell us what he did. Yeah, so Robert Hansen, actually, when you were talking about Benedict Arnold, it um, kind of reminded me of, of him. Um, so he uh, joined the Bureau, I believe, in 1975, um, and he was stationed in Gary, Indiana, um, had a family, three kids, and then he was transferred to New York, uh, New York City, and with, with his family, um, and was assigned to the Counterintelligence Division. Uh, my understanding is that he was incredibly resentful um, of being sent to New York City, you know, having to live this lifestyle, um, very little, I can tell you agents don't make a lot of money. Um, so uh, he decided, he basically um, called up the Soviets and offered to spy for them and just started sending them, you know, information. Uh, and he did that for um, 18 years. He took a brief break when the Soviet Union crumbled. Um, but part of the uh, Russian state now is that those intelligence services kind of, you know, reorganized. Um, and then he walked back into the Russian embassy a few years later, um, sometime in the early uh, 90s. They actually didn't believe him at that point. So their files had somehow gotten um, disorganized. And they thought that the FBI was trying to do what's called a dangle. Um, it's when an intelligence service like plants a double agent um, in front of you. So they rejected him. Uh, but then he tried again. So then he went on for 10 more years. Um, but he exposed, uh, he exposed many of the CIA's sources who were then um, arrested and executed in the Soviet Union and then later um, in Russia. Uh, he exposed um, various operations that we were doing. So, for example, when the Russians were building their new embassy, the FBI was actually building a tunnel underneath in order to create, to be able to eavesdrop on them. He totally exposed that whole thing. It was like several billion dollars of, you know, operations. Um, so, yeah, 
That's How Hanson. How did he get caught? Um, <laughs> he got caught uh, because, well, he had he was basically always searching for himself to see whether he was basically assigned to I think monitor all the investigations they were doing on spies and moles or whatever. So he was able to actually search to see whether they he the FBI was investigating him. Um, but he. He came on the radar. He was a computer expert. Something he did finally, you know, like 15 years after the fact, um, looked fishy to them. And so then they started the surveillance on him. And finally, uh, when he was assigned in D.C. at that point, he did his final dead drop, which is a tradecraft maneuver where you arrange for, you do a signal and then you drop some documents and then the spies come and pick it up. Um, so as soon as he did the drop, um, the FBI arrested him. There's a great movie called Breach, if you're interested in his story. Um, it's, it's pretty well done. And uh, he was finally arrested in 2001. He's now in a, uh, he's, I believe he's in solitary confinement. Solitary confinement, for, and he was convicted of espionage. He was convicted of espionage, yes, yeah. for passing classified information. Yeah. So he, again, as Eugene said, would not, he would still, even for spying for 18 years, I don't even think the Soviets would have counted. I don't think so. We weren't at war with them. Correct. Tell us about Aaron Burr, Vice President of the United States, who's been accused of treason. Yeah, this is one of the most bizarre episodes uh, in American history. Uh, And one way to imagine it is imagine that in 2012, Barack Obama dumped uh, Joe Biden and picked somebody else to be Vice President. Uh, And then in 2015, Barack Obama prosecuted Joe Biden for treason. Uh, And... (laughs) pulled all the strings behind the prosecution, doing everything he could to make sure that Joe Biden uh, went to jail and possibly being executed. Um, that sounds completely unfathomable, uh, but that is precisely what happened uh, in the early 1800s. Aaron Burr, uh, who had been Thomas Jefferson's vice president in his first term, uh, who had notoriously killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel, uh, and then after Jefferson's first term, um, went off and uh, it's really unclear what he did. Historians still argue quite a bit about what it was. The, the charge was that he was supposedly trying to separate parts of the Western United States uh, from the United States and maybe make them part of Mexico or part of an independent country or something like that. Uh, but the whole thing was a, f- a fiasco. Um, it was presided over by Chief Justice John Marshall, um, who was a second cousin to President Jefferson, but they hated each other. Uh, and uh, Marshall described presiding over this trial as the most disagreeable experience of his entire life. Uh, and I think it really was. Uh, and Burr ultimately was acquitted uh, and went on to live uh, into ripe old age, I think in, into the 1830s. Um, but that, uh, in some ways, uh, even more than Benedict Arnold, is the highest ranking person uh, in the United States government who's ever been charged with uh, treason. Uh, and in the course of that, um, Chief Justice Marshall made a number of rulings uh, that sort of set out a relatively narrow scope uh, for the crime and that were generally favorable uh, to Aaron Burr, but it's it's a wonderful story. Somebody should do a Hollywood movie on it, or maybe in a musical. <laughs> <laughs> so I believe uh, Aaron Burr, I think even before then, was labeled the American Catiline. Right. So, Going back to Catalina, the Catalina's conspiracy during the late uh, uh, Roman Republic, another example of uh, of uh, somebody who is seen as a traitor deliberately waging war on his own state. I'd like to ask you all about Anwar al Awlaki, a U.S.-born person who went overseas and uh, preached. Uh, in a certain way, and as far as we know, was killed by a drone that was ordered by Barack Obama, the President of the United States. Uh, let me start with you. Uh, that's reaching out in a, in a obviously a contemporary way uh, to accomplish something. Did he commit treason? Uh, was was death the appropriate? Uh, thing to happen to him? Well, yes, I think I think he did commit treason. Um, he was a spokesperson for Al Qaeda, and um, as Eugene mentioned, uh, a an enemy doesn't have to be a foreign nation; it could be a foreign group, uh, and that goes back way into English law. Uh, so, recognizing Al Qaeda as an enemy of the United States is is pretty clear. We have an authorization for use of military force against them. It's very clear um, that our forces are engaged in armed combat against them. So you can uh, say we're at war with Al Qaeda. Yeah, pretty easily, yes. Um, the, the tricky part here is it was a drone attack uh, designed to kill an American citizen. Uh, and so on the one hand, you say, well, here's the President of the United States essentially ordering 
with no judicial review, with no consultation with Congress, but simply on his own accord deciding to kill an American citizen, uh, which sounds pretty bad. Um, on the other hand, when American citizens do things that place themselves in the hands of the enemy, they get killed, right? I mean, if there were Americans uh, fighting in the German army during World War II, um, you know, we don't stop the war and pull that person out and have a trial in the middle of the battle. Um, you know, the person is going to get shot. Uh, and so figuring out the right balance here um, between the rights of an American citizen and effectively prosecuting uh, military action is, is quite difficult. Uh, the Obama administration has a set of guidelines on how to do this, which I think on balance uh, were pretty good. Um, on the other hand, you always have to think, is this a power you want in the hands of any president? Um, not just Barack Obama, are you happy with Donald Trump having that power? Um, and so this is something that the courts have managed to duck the question, um, but at some point, perhaps, uh, it will reach a court of law. Asha, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, so I, I disagree with Carlton, my colleague, uh, respectfully, uh, that I am... Um, that this classmates is, at Yale. <laughs> we were classmates, yes. Um, in our constitutional law class, That's especially. Right. So, um, <laughs> um, so I, I think I think the Ab Ablaki, um killing was problematic in a lot of ways. So, um, first, I think linking it to treason is just. It's not a link that they've made, but even if they did it, um, it, it still wouldn't even meet the requirements because I don't believe that there were two witnesses that you know, certified that he was, you know, taking up arms or anything. So it wouldn't have even met the constitutional standard of, of that. But um, the legal... video of him? Uh, propagandizing? At least propagandizing. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know if they did. Um, I mean, that's the problem, is that all of these decisions are made in a secret um, setting. And, you know, the, the legal justification, the legal white paper... Um, that the Obama administration released actually doesn't base it on um, actually, you know, any kind of providing aid or comfort to the enemy. The theory is that it's a preemptive self-defense. Um, so this is that this person is an imminent threat, and so to, that we must preemptively kill them before they can attack. Um, and again, this is being done without any due process, um, which I think, especially for an American citizens, is problematic. And I think if you think of the different legal requirements that we have for American citizens, for example, just to uh, conduct electronic surveillance. Legally speaking, Ablaki, as an American citizen, would have had more protections against the US government being able to initiate electronic surveillance to listen in on his phone than he did to, from being killed by a drone attack, um, which I think is just strange. Um, and not really commensurate with kind of what, what he was exposed to. So um, I, I think that's a hot mess. Um, I definitely don't, I, you know, I, didn't, I wasn't happy with it in, in the hands of the Obama administration. I'm definitely not happy with it in the hands of the current administration. But um, I think it's very legally sketchy. Eugene, you want to take sides? Sure. There, I think there are two completely different questions here. One is, was he guilty of treason? And it seems to me the wrong question because the only reason we are even kind of raising the issue of, of uh, whether it was done at him was right is precisely because he was a U.S. citizen. Mm -hmm. If he wasn't a U.S. citizen, he couldn't be guilty of treason, especially if he wasn't a U.S. citizen or permanent resident. Whatever Osama bin Laden was, he wasn't a traitor to the U.S. because he owed no allegiance that he could then betray. And yet, of course, killing him does not, uh, uh, or, or killing any of the uh, uh, many lower-ranked al-Qaeda uh, al uh, um, uh, fighters uh, uh, w does not raise any, any such objections. We kill them not because they're traitors. Uh, we kill them because they're fighting war against us. That's what one does in a war. Now, as to whether there ought to be due process before this sort of thing happens, well, there was a president who... Who was who essentially directly or indirectly ordered the deaths not of one or a handful of American citizens, but the deaths of hundreds of thousands of American citizens. His name was Abraham Lincoln. We were fighting a war against people who they actually may have called themselves not American citizens, but Lincoln's legal theory all along was secession was null and void. They were not Confederates 
who were citizens of a foreign country. There was no foreign country. There were rebels. They were American citizens who betrayed the U.S. Eventually, eventually they were all pardoned. But while the war was on, they were slaughtered. They were slaughtered en masse, and nobody had a trial. Ooh, you know, we need to have a hearing before we're going to have we're going to have a battle, or before we order the killing of uh, of somebody else in more more surreptitious ways. Uh, so I do think that the possibility of killing somebody, U.S. citizens or not, but especially U.S. citizens, uh, uh, even overseas, even during war, even when they are alleged to be uh, adherents of the of the other side, is dangerous. But I think it's the sort of danger that you have to run if you're going to have be able to fight wars, including wars where at least some people, or during civil war, all people on the other side uh, were American citizens, unless you're going to hamstring yourself with having a little mini trial before every military action. So the actions of one person mm-hmm. uh, are analogous, despite the difference in the numbers involved, to the civil war? Uh, the, the, both involve wars. It's just the civil war happened to involve a war where everybody on the other side was an American citizen. The war against Al-Qaeda is a war where only a small handful of people on the other side are American citizens. In both, we try to kill the enemy relatively wholesale, of course, on a much, much smaller scale today than during the Civil War, just because of the nature of the enemy. Uh, uh, The only difference is in one of them, nobody could have even thought of having a special rule for American citizens getting due process because everybody was an American citizen during Civil War. Uh, Here, you can imagine a rule that says, well, when you want to kill Al-Qaeda soldiers, no problem, but if one of them is an American uh, citizen, then you've got to do something super special. Uh, it just it seems to me that that's not, certainly as a constitutional matter, not a sort of uh, uh, obligation that we should undertake. So, Asher, that doesn't change your mind. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, sorry just one, one point on the, on the video thing that you mentioned. So we have an 18th century constitution that says you can't be convicted without two witnesses the same overt act or confession in open court. And that means even if you have a video, a really good video of showing the person committing treason, uh, and that's all you got, that's insufficient uh, under the treason clause. Um, Why wouldn't people who watch the video be witnesses? Because only the video operator. Well, uh, um, well, uh, if you could get the operator in court, but if what you have is is an Al Qaeda produced video, uh, unless you get the people who actually saw it uh, into court, I, I don't think you're going to be able to do it. Um, and so that's one of the the problems with treason prosecutions is that's that evidentiary thing, particularly if things happen you know far away. Uh, so that's why you often see prosecutions for other offenses. Uh, where you don't have that peculiar evidentiary burden. And I suspect if, if the you know, framers were around today and were to draft the clause, they might say two witnesses the same overt act or a video of the act being committed, um, which would be, you know, because what you're concerned about is that this didn't actually happen, that it's false, but if you actually have a, you know, a good video of the person doing it, it would seem to be good evidence. But that at least is not what our, our Constitution has drafted uh, allows. How oh, sure, do you want to have any comment on what we just heard from uh, Eugene? Um, yeah, I just think the analogy is maybe not exactly correct. I don't think in the Civil War, if you had the Confederate newspaper reporter, you know, like walking down, that that would have it would have been consistent with the laws of war to just shoot the person. Um, which well, not just Confederate newspaper reporter, but somebody who's sort of in charge of the propaganda arm, essentially the the Joseph Goebbels of. Uh, <laughs> I think he would be uh, captured. I think he would be captured. I don't think that. I don't think it would be hmm. legitimate to actually kill. Really? Okay. I mean, I. That's my sense. I mean, but yeah. So I mean, I think if you're if you're carrying arms and you're in the field of battle, yeah. So I mean, I think, but that's where and that's the legal justification is that it's an imminent. He's an imminent threat. They're basically we're saying that Olaki was essentially on the cusp of attacking. But you don't have to have an imminent threat. If, if let's say some soldiers happen to come upon an enemy camp. The enemy camp, you know, they weren't expecting even to meet Americans for, for, for weeks on end. They can just throw a blob of mortar into them. They don't even have to say, oh, come out with your hands up, although they could if they thought it was safe. But you don't have to. Uh, in, uh, if somebody is uh, a member of the, of the enemy army, you, you don't have to wait until they're about to shoot you. You can shoot them first, even if they have no idea you're around. Uh, and I'm not sure why the rule would be different for somebody whose job in the enemy army is propaganda rather than somebody whose job is to operate artillery. Well, it was Obama's definition that he was an imminent threat. 
Well, that uh, was the justification. uh, I didn't think. Fair enough. Uh, I'm just saying, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. I don't think that as a matter of law of war, either as it is or it should be, uh, that the imminence uh, imminence ought to be required. Well, but what it goes back to is, I think, what Carlton said about the danger of what the framers were trying to avoid. Because I think when you can start to shape the 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 new landscape of war and what people are doing into uh, paradigms which say that they're treasonous and therefore deserve to be killed without, you know, due process, um, I think you start getting into the realm where it can be abused in the exact way that we were trying to avoid. But So you'd say the same if he, even if he wasn't an American citizen, because I take it the due process clause would apply not just to American citizens, certainly in the U.S. It applies to... to, to Immigrants, it applies to illegal aliens, it applies to anybody who's found in the U.S. But I take it you'd agree that if he wasn't a U.S. citizen, there'd be no problem with with uh, with killing him with a drone. Carl, let me go back no? to you. Oh, maybe. <laughs> sorry, uh, sorry, I may be wrong. <clears throat> we'll never get done with this. Uh, why do you, why is it that the uh, definition of treason in the Constitution of the United States is so narrow? It's my understanding that it's the most limited one of its kind in the world. Yeah, yeah so the... Constitution draws its language from British law. Uh, England enacted a statute of treasons in 1351, uh, and that uh, sought to limit treason to a handful of particular categories. Now, why they did that uh, actually turns on a sort of bizarre twist of English land law, uh, which is that uh, if you died convicted of treason, your land forfeited to the king. Um, if you died convicted of a felony, your land forfeited to the next highest lord of the feudal chain. Uh, so mm-hmm. feudal lords had an interest in keeping the ne- definition of treason narrow. Uh, and so that, that's why it was <laughs> originally the money. in there. Right, it's all about the money. Um, but so, so English law included a, a variety of other offenses, um, some of them quite bizarre. Counterfeiting, for example, was treason under English law. Uh, it was treason to sleep with the... Uh, daughter, uh, sorry, with the wife of the king's eldest son. Uh, that was high treason. Um, and most importantly, it was treason to compass the death, death of the king. Uh, and under English law, that tended to get interpreted relatively broadly. Uh, and a variety of political offenses could be potentially be seen as compassing the death of the king because they created circumstances where it would be likely that the king uh, would die or would lose uh, his royal power. So there was real concern that that compassing clause in English law was a problem. Uh, so when the American framers sort of looked at that English statute, um, they only took two provisions from it. Uh, levying war um, against the king, which became levying war against the United States, or adhering to the king's, king's enemies, which became adhering to uh, the enemies of the United States. Uh, and part of the concern was, of course, that the American colonists had themselves been accused of treason right, by the British government for protesting uh, in the years prior to the American Revolution. Uh, uh, like uh, Chief Justice Mansfield uh, had, for example, concluded that the Boston Tea Party uh, was an act of treason uh, under English law. That, that may well have been uh, correct. Um, but the Americans said, no, uh, we're not committing treason. Um, we are simply exercising our rights to lawful resistance to what we view as unlawful and unconstitutional policies. Uh, and that is something that we're entitled uh, to do. Uh, so I think part of the concern was that having themselves not only been accused of treason, but then actually committed treason because the American Revolution was a massive act of treason against the British government, um, that we need to be careful with this. Um, that there's something about that word um, that just has a power um, that, that other crimes don't have. Um, and I, I don't want to you know, disturb anybody's stomach, um, but English law punished treason differently than ordinary felonies. Ordinary felons were hanged. Um, by contrast, a f- English trader um, was dragged behind a cart to the place of execution, um, hanged, um, but while still alive, was cut down. Um, their stomach was cut open, their bowels were ripped out and burned in front of them, uh, and then their body was quartered, uh, arms and legs cut off, and the head was cut off and placed on a stake. Uh, and the perception was that this would have a deterrent effect uh, <laughs> on people who viewed it. Uh, and I suspect that was probably true. Uh, so um, in English law, there really was a difference between being convicted of, of treason and being convicted of an ordinary felony. Uh, in America, we don't have that because it's, it would be death, the same manner of execution either way. I have been uh, signaled to that the time for questions and answers has arisen, and uh, that, questions may, that means questions from you. Thank you for this great event. 
Um, based on everything you've put forth as far as the definition of treason and knowing what we know currently with what's happening with the investigation led by Robert Mueller, could you explain what might happen when we have the results of this investigation? Many things, but not, <laughs> but not a treason prosecution. So with that, with that what? Um, they called me because I know something about treason. The other stuff I was <laughs> Anybody want to, else want to respond to that? Or? Yeah, so um, I think that you may see, I mean, look, uh, quite apart from treason, our federal laws also have, criminal laws have a very high burden. They, you have to prove every element of a crime. You have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And I think if you speak to any federal prosecutor, the, you know, they're not easy, federal crimes are not easy to prove. So Mueller has a very high burden. And, um, you know, you may see some prosecutions for financial crimes. We know that, that he's already on the trail for some of those. The bread and butter for federal prosecutors is false statements and obstruction of justice. Um, that means when the FBI agents come knocking, you lie, and then you try to burn you know, your tax returns or whatever. So then you've already just committed your crime right there. Um, but I wouldn't expect, it's not Mueller's charge to blow everything wide open. And if people's behavior does not either constitute a crime or doesn't rise to um, the level that he could prove it in court, it may not come out. And he is not required under the special counsel regulations to provide a public report. Um, so it's important to understand that he is simply there to report to Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein which charges he believes should be pursued, which ones he declines, and that could never see the light of day unless Rosenstein agrees and it goes to court. Um, so I, I was an agent under Mueller. Um, he is exceptional. He's no nonsense. He will go after everything he can. But I think people are putting all their faith in him to do everything. And he's not going to be able to do everything. So you know, there are going to need to be other mechanisms to bring things to light that may not be a crime or may not rise to the level of a chargeable offense. That I get the point where uh, you say that treason and espionage are very difficult tr crimes to prove. Um, I'm thinking of historical examples where I, th uh, I my, my perception was it wasn't that hard. Uh, I'm thinking of the treatment of people who are communist sympathizers or left-wing activists uh, during the Cold War, even before during the Cold War in the 20s, where labor activists and left-wing activists were arrested and jailed, uh, severe restrictions on the right of free speech. Uh, I guess the justification was that they were advocating the uh, violent overthrow of the government. Maybe that's even a, a discussion of sedition. But I guess just generally, my understanding of history is if the government really wants to get you as a political dissident, that can happen. And so I don't take a lot of comfort in hearing how difficult it is for people to be prosecuted for treason or espionage. So in the Constitutional Convention, one of the delegates said, well, it's possible none of this matters. Uh, you know, we, we can define treason narrowly, but the states can still create other capital crimes. Uh, or the federal government can create other capital crimes, address it disloyalty, and we just call it something else. Um, and so I think to some extent that that's true. I mean, we, we have created other statutes um, for things other than, than treason. Espionage probably being the, the best example of that, something that's like treason, but it's not technically treason, but still a capital crime. Uh, so the Rosenbergs, for example, were executed um, for espionage, um, not for treason because the Soviet Union technically wasn't an enemy at the time, and then going back into the you know the uh, teens and twenties, um, the left-wing agitators were all tried under the Sedition Act, uh, which provided for a twenty-year jail term uh, for, in most cases, simply spreading left-wing propaganda. Uh, so there there are a lot of threats to liberty that come uh, in guises other than than treason prosecution. I think that's absolutely right. Can you commit treason against a state? Uh, yes, you can. Um, so during the American Revolution, all the treason prosecutions were brought by states, um, not by um, the federal government, because there, there really wasn't a federal judicial system then. Uh, and it remains the case that most states have a statute uh, making it treason uh, to levy war against the state or to adhere to that state's enemies. Uh, now, I think most um, scholars would argue that the 
states can't have enemies in a meaningful sense because states are not um, part of international law that's capable of having enemies. Uh, but in theory, if you launched a violent overthrow of your state government, you could be guilty of treason uh, against that state. And there have been two prosecutions in American history uh, under the U.S. Constitution by states, one the uh, Door Rebellion in the 1840s in Rhode Island, uh, and one you've all heard of, John Brown. Uh, who was convicted of treason against the state of Virginia for levying war against it in the Harper's Ferry Raid. Uh, and he actually was executed. I'm sorry, but he was Well, it's actually a very interesting question um, about loyalty <laughs> because um, when he entered the state of Virginia, he entered it with hostile intent uh, and had never actually lived in Virginia. So there was a real question as to whether or not he was a, had allegiance to Virginia. Um, and I think that probably the, under the best understanding of treason doctrine, he wasn't uh, someone who had allegiance to Virginia. Um, but um, let's just say that Virginia in the state of 1859 was not hugely receptive uh, to John Brown's uh, legal, legal arguments, even if they were correct. As you say, there are other crimes that uh, people can be tried for besides treason if they um, uh, show some allegiance to foreign countries. Um, what I'm wondering in real life situations now is um, someone like Michael Flynn for not registering um, uh, that he was working and making money for foreign countries, uh, to the, he didn't put that on federal documents uh, while he was working both for the campaign of Trump and after he became national security advisor. I'm wondering about um, Paul Manafort I'm wondering about Donald Trump Jr. with his uh, emails in which he indicated he would be more than happy to receive uh, information from Russia about the Democratic uh, presidential candidate. And I'm wondering about Donald Trump himself uh, for, as someone said earlier tonight, asking uh, the Russians to go out and find information on the Democratic presidential candidate. Thank you. I promised we were going to get back to that one. Go ahead. So uh, I think it's important to realize there are all of these different kinds of crimes with different limitations on them. So just to give one example, there's some controversy about whether accepting information from foreign nationals or from agents of a foreign government is in fact a crime. You can't accept things of value. An interesting question is whether information would count as a thing of value. What about soliciting? Uh, soliciting, it turns out, is because Generally, soliciting a crime is itself a crime, and generally soliciting something that's non-criminal is itself not criminal. The two end up being the same thing. Whether you're accepting or soliciting, the analysis ends up being pretty much the same, and the statute covers both. Uh, so for example, uh, if you really read information as thing of value for purposes of that statute, then that means that, let's say, an, uh, a candidate investigating, say, some non-citizen employee, a uh, possible mistreatment of non-citizen employees, non-citizen, non-permanent resident employees of the other candidate, uh, uh, would be a crime because you'd be soliciting information from non-citizen, non-residents about the other candidate. Or if, for example, somebody, the Hillary Clinton campaign said, you know, I think that Donald Trump was doing something bad in Turkey. They wouldn't be able to go and talk to Turkish officials or Turkish citizens about that because that would be getting such information. So it could be that that, it turns out, is not a viable criminal theory. On the other hand, and I can't speak to the facts, but there are some statutes that require registration as an agent of, the federal, of a foreign uh, uh, government in order to lobby on behalf of the foreign government. The act itself may be perfectly legal, but the law requires you to register. So every one of these crimes has its own rules and own definitions, and I hazard to say its own experts who might be able to, to speak <laughs> to that. Uh, the important thing is that when we talk about treason, what we're talking about is helping an enemy really in pretty much any way. We don't have to identify the particular way. Because once we're at war with somebody, whether it's the Confederacy or whether it is with Al-Qaeda or whether it's with the Nazis or with Germans during World War I, you know, Americans know that they can't pretty much provide any help to them. Whereas with the Russians and the Chinese, all sorts of things are perfectly legitimate uh, in uh, doing business with them and such, uh, but except there are particular narrow categories of things that are not. And each one of them has its own rules. I do have a question about Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden. Um, you, um, formerly with the FBI, said that yes, you believe they're traitors. Um, they uh, exposed published classified information. 
So my question and concern, though, there are laws in place that obviously say that they're both traitors. But what about the other side of it, which is the argument of that if they were committing espionage, it was on, the, it was on behalf of the American people to let the American people know that actually the American government the NSA uh, was committing crimes in terms of mass surveillance. So my question is this, where are the laws that uh, are equally as strong against those who reveal classified information to those in the government that commit crimes such as mass surveillance? And, and that's, that's something that's not being discussed here tonight. Yeah, so, um there are whistleblower statutes that um, allow people, there are channels that are there for people who want to reveal information that they believe is in the public interest. I'm not an expert on those, but I know, for example, one of my colleagues um, just launched a nonprofit um, legal assistance firm, essentially, uh, for the intelligence community, saying, if this is something you want to do, there are legal channels to do this, and here's, here's how you can do it. These did exist for, for Chelsea Manning and for Edward Snowden. Um, so, you know, could, you know, I, I don't know what the, the, like, exactly how those channels work, but you can go to a lawyer, you can, like, go through the law to do that, you don't have to hand over a million documents to the Russians. So, I, I you know, I think well, that there's yeah, clearly, like, a, me, a middle ground, and I, I'm just very skeptical of um, the rationale that it was purely done for, in, in the public interest, well, my personal view, given that there are other avenues. I'm wondering if you could describe, this is a question for Asha Rangappa, um, what laws there exist to prosecute people who act as agents of influence for a foreign power, because it seems we have many agents of influence operating in the current administration and in that, in that cam campaign that preceded it, but what types of crimes could that be related to? I mean, would they have to commit a crime to change an election? Would it, I mean, are there actual, what kind of laws could they be prosecuted for? As Eugene said, there's pretty much, unless you are active, like actively violating a criminal statute, the one thing that encompasses essentially acting in the interests of a foreign power is something called the Foreign Agent Registration Act. This is actually a mostly procedural statute. It requires people who are acting on behalf of foreign interests to go register with the State Department so that it's transparent that they are, in fact, acting on this foreign power. So, for example, um, the Department of Justice just delivered letters to RT, uh, the, new, the Russian news organization, and Sputnik Radio to go register as foreign agents. Basically, and this was pretty unusual, they don't typically do this with media organizations, but basically they were saying, we don't believe you're actually an independent media organization. We think that you're being directed and controlled by a foreign um, power. And we want people to know that. You can still keep doing what you're doing, we just want people to know it. If you fail to register, that can become a crime. It's not a particularly toothy statute. It has a five-year penalty. Um, it's very rarely prosecuted. You might see some of those with Mueller, maybe, um, but probably in conjunction with other things. So, you know, I think, unfortunately, again, when we keep talking about legality, we start to get into very, like, fine-tooth areas, and I think one of the things that we lose sight of is it doesn't have to be illegal for it to be bad. Okay, I did background checks for the FBI and we had a mnemonic that we used. It was called Carla F. Bad. So every time you went and you interviewed somebody about a third party, you know, you're trying to get um, background information, you ask them about the subject's uh, character, associations, reputation, loyalty, ability, bias, finances, um, alcohol, and drugs. So that may make sure you cover all the bases. And so, you know, you're asking things like, would you trust this person to do the right thing in a difficult situation? Can this person handle their finances wisely? Um, has it, this person done anything to make you question their loyalty to the United States or its institutions? Now, if somebody said yes to any of those, it doesn't mean that the subject is a criminal, but it means that you may not want to give them a position of public trust, okay? 
all of these people that have come up will probably fail Carla F. Bad pretty <laughs> seriously. Okay. Um, and so, you know, that I think is the bigger question. I mean, maybe, you know, you'd love to see them in jail. It, it's going to be very hard to do that. But there, there is a bigger picture here that we lose sight of when we just focus on legality and criminality, is what I would say. Thank you so much for this great discussion. Um, before we close... I, I just want to say we, we, have, we have some great lawyers here, and if you need any, any help in <laughs> any of these areas, you know who to call. <laughs> yes. Um, on behalf of Zocalo Public Square, I'd like to thank our co-presenters, KCRW, for making this event possible. I'd also like to thank our friends at the Japanese American National Museum for bringing us into their beautiful space. And thank all of you for coming out and joining us tonight. And we invite all of you to please stick around, continue the conversation with each other and with our featured speakers um, at a reception just outside these doors in the lobby. We have ushers standing by to show you the way. And of course, let's thank our speakers for um, sharing their time and insight with us tonight. <laughs> <laughs>